Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series on the high country of North Carolina. So we are going to be doing a 10 episode deep dive into everything you need to know about buying a short term rental in this market. And we do have a few supplemental materials for y'all to check out over on our website. So any information that you need on pricing of short-term rental properties in this market, you can find it on our website at theshorttermshop.com. You can also find income data, thanks to our friends over at airdna.com. You can find that on our website, again, at theshorttermshop.com. If you guys are interested in buying a short-term rental property with a short-term shop agent in this market, you can email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com or you can join our Facebook group. We've created an amazing community with over 50,000 people where we talk about all short-term rental investing all day, every day. And you can join that. The name of the group is the same title as my book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. And we look forward to seeing you over there. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the short-term show special episode series on the high country. Today, we are talking about data and analysis, everyone's favorite topic. So we have a few actually all familiar faces again. Uh, we got... <laughs> Stop making me laugh, Joe. We have uh, Garrett in the high country. Garrett, you want to introduce yourself really quick? Absolutely. Uh, great to be here. My name is Garrett. I am uh, Avery's agent in the high country. Um, so I specialize in helping people buy short-term rentals up here. Uh, I've lived up here for almost a decade on and off, have bought and owned uh, rental properties kind of in a couple areas of the state uh, up here included. And uh, yeah, happy to be on with a couple of rock stars and some pricing gurus. Hopefully uh, I learn a little bit um, this morning as well. Thanks, Garrett. And next we have Joe Prilliman, a very successful investor in multiple markets in North Carolina. Joe, introduce yourself real quick. Oh, you're too kind, Avery. Hi, I'm Joe Prilliman. I'm the uh, agent in the Carolina Beach market, but I'm also an active real estate investor. I've um, got 10 units down here in CB. I've um, got uh, about six up in Banner Elk and uh, just love the game and love crunching some numbers. And so uh, I'll try not to smile too bright. Make everybody laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And last but not least, we have the data expert, Kenny Bedwell from STR Insights. Kenny, do you want to give yourself a brief introduction as well? Sure. Yeah. So my name is uh, Kenny Bedwell. Um, I uh, I appreciate you calling me the data expert. I don't, I don't know if I can say that, but um, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm founder and CEO of STR Insights and I do love data and passionate about data. So, and I love to hold realtors accountable for when they say something. So we're going to keep them in line here. We got the data, we got the numbers. But the other thing too I love doing is is they provide the color and the explanation behind the data because a lot of times a lot of these markets I've, I've never been to. So it, it's good to say, hey, why, you know, I'm seeing these numbers. Why do you, why are you like, what what's explain those? So um, anyway, super excited to be on here and talk about the high country. Thanks, Kenny. Uh, and I, hopefully you don't have to hold us accountable too much. Yes, and we, uh, we're getting this right most this of the time. Seem to know what they're talking about. So I think we'll be fine. So <laughs> <laughs> we awesome. got you. Awesome. <laughs> well, first let's start off with a few key terms when it comes to analyzing, uh, a short-term rental. Uh, there's a lot of different real estate investor terms out there thrown around like cap rate, NOI, cash on cash return. So let's kind of 
unmuddy those waters for our listeners really fast. So what typically is let's let's start with cash on cash return. What is cash on cash return? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll start it just to um yeah, give my two cents worth. So obviously, you know, at a at a um at its core, cash on cash return is, you know, how much cash you're physically putting into the deal and what return you're getting on that cash. So if you put 10% down plus closing costs, plus furnishing, all the cash that's coming out of your pocket, uh, regardless of how you finance it. Um, and then when you look at your NOI and your returns at the end of the year, how much are you making on that actual dollar? Obviously, cash on cash is really uh, dependent on how much you're leveraged. And we talk about being leveraged, that be uh, being lent on or financed. Um, when we talk in terms of, uh, yeah, so that's cash, that's cash on cash. When we talk more in terms of cap rate, we're talking, you know, from a commercial standpoint, and you know, we're underwriting a business and a short-term rental. So if we, when we talk about cap rate, we're talking about the the rate on our money or the overall investment with no leverage involved. So essentially, hey, if I pay cash for a property, what's my you know return based on my NOI, and that's going to be more of our cap rate. But our cash on cash obviously is going to be um, essentially how much, yeah, how much we're making on our dollar that we're physically putting in. All right. So your cash on cash is basically the amount of money that you put in at the beginning of a deal. So that's your down payment, your closing costs. Don't forget closing costs, guys. That's a big one that jumps up and bites people in the ass because they're like, oh yeah, 20% down. Cool. And then they don't realize it can be an extra $10,000 for your closing costs. So keep that in mind. Uh, and then any furnishing, et cetera, you know, make ready costs that you're putting in versus this is the way I'm dumbing it down really hard. So y'all don't like email me and tell me I'm an idiot. Uh, but all that cash that you put in at the beginning versus what's in your bank account at the end of the year after you've paid all of your expenses. The, it's a ratio of those two numbers. Now, what does what expenses does that include? Because I've seen investors get really confused about that. So for me, that includes your normal expenses. So your utilities, your internet, your cleaning fees, your uh, it does include your mortgage. It also includes things like CapEx. So if you have to replace a washer and dryer over the course of the year, it includes that. What it does not include, in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, it doesn't include debt pay down. It also does not include appreciation. Uh, I think that trying to add in those two things can artificially inflate cash on cash return numbers and you don't want to artificially inflate anything for obvious reasons. So um, keep that in mind, just your expenses that you're paying, no nebulous numbers like what my potential appreciation is because appreciation can change uh, with due to outside factors you know, in the blink of an eye. So appreciation to me should always be extra gravy. Uh, it should not be what you are basing your investment on. All right, so while we're still on the cash on cash return subject, uh, what are we looking for for a minimum cash on cash return, guys, as an as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'll let the other guys chime in as well. But I think that all depends on who you are and what your goal is, and what your profession is, and what you're trying to do. Uh, if you're trying to quit your job from real estate and from from short term rentals in specific, you're going to be looking for a lot higher cash on cash. I think another aspect that cash on cash doesn't always take into consideration, Avery, is depreciation. Um, so you have a lot of other benefits to you know true cash on cash. Hey, if someone's taking depreciation, then that's more tax, more money they're essentially making because they're less paying in taxes. And so if you're a high income earner, your quote cash on cash could be lower, but your actual overall return, at, you know, um, not looking at EBITDA is is going to be um, is going to be a little bit lower. So again, it all depends on the 
person, I would say. I wouldn't necessarily say it's an actual number. Um, obviously, people can compare what they're making the most passively from call it a stock market, call it an ETF, whatever, and compare that to a short-term rental, which obviously is going to require a lot more legwork and um, day-to-day labor. Um, but that's just something to think about. Uh, I would say anywhere from 10 to, you know, it, it, gets, it gets a little bit tricky when you start talking about 30, 40, 50%, because yes, people are doing that, but they probably brought the property, you know, 20 years ago, maybe. So um, yeah, I'll let the other guys kind of chime in, but I know that it's not necessarily a black and white, an answer there as far as what's optimal. Yeah, absolutely. So I, yeah, it, it comes down to the person and really what they want to do. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I want to quit my nine to five job, I want to scale quickly then the higher the cash on cash return, the better, because you're trying to get your money back and build that snowball and and just keep growing that portfolio. So, but if you're like, I'm not trying to quit my nine to five or I like what I do, this is more of a, an actual investment, a long-term hold, then you don't necessarily need to be 100% focused on cash on cash. Um, you know, you could be focused more on cash flow, which is how much money you get back at the end of the day, the profit you're getting in your pocket uh, that makes it worth it to you. Um, different markets are better at cash on cash than cash flow, and the different markets have better, you know, cash flow than cash on cash. And so, uh, because they are two separate things. So, it really depends on the person and their end goals, like Garrett was saying. Perfect, perfect explanation across the board, because it's also about risk tolerance. Like if you want to go out there and be completely leveraged out, is it technically possible to get infinite cash on cash return? Yeah. If you're buying something that's dilapidated, adding a bunch of value, cash out refinancing, and then the property's still cash flowing after that. Yeah, you can do it, but you're going to be very leveraged at that point. Um, and so it's all the individual where you're at in your investing career. I would say another thing to add just for my market in particular, I know it applies to some of the other markets, but we're an area that is that have a, has a lot of second homes from people that live lo- semi-local or in Florida. And so I have a lot of clients that are from the state where, hey, their goal is to get 0% cash on cash return, which I know sounds crazy to people. But in the end of the day, they're like, hey, this is going to be a second home for me. I'm going to spend 10, 15 weekends a year out of here, you no know, up here. And so if I can find a property that when I'm not up here personally, it pays for itself. Um, then that's their goal. And so I think in some of these markets that are going to be a little bit more attractive to that in, for investors to actually go there personally, um, a lot of times their return, there's an opportunity cost of you know being able to spend, you know, they're not paying for vacation or you know, when they go on vacation, they're coming here. So that's a metric that um, you know, again, is something that people can consider when they're buying really in all the North Carolina markets. I know it's the same way down in Joe's market. It's not an area where investors never want to go down to their property. Yeah. So The way I look at it, I would say a 20% cash on cash return is kind of the benchmark of like, yeah, okay, I should buy this. But there are some nuances to that. So if you're running your numbers and you get an 18.95% cash on cash return, that to me is close enough that I would still probably move forward because everything with with short-term rentals is such a range in terms of being able to figure out what they're going to make, what the return they're going to give you. It's never like an exact number. And then something else I'll say is uh, if you're buying something, let's say like buying a beach property, but you're closing in May, like right before the high season happens and it needs some updates, but you're at like a 15% cash on cash return the way that it is now. And you'll make that the first year just to go ahead and get it up and not waste that first high season. But then 
once you do some updates in the off season, you could bump that up over the 20% mark. That's something to keep in mind too. Now don't run around saying, okay, well, this property is not that great right now. I'm going to go ahead and buy this and then I'll bump it up later. That's irresponsible. But I'm if you have a, you know, a task list of, okay, I don't want to blow my high season right now by doing a bunch of renovations during it because of the time of year that I'm closing. But after I plan to do X, Y, and Z, and I know that adding X, Y, and Z will come out to A, B, and C in returns, then that's that's something I think is, is okay. So under 20% is okay if you have an actionable plan to bump it of things you're going to do that are going to bump it up. So Kenny, I want to come back to you really quick because you mentioned there's a difference between cash on cash return and cash flow. And some markets are different and some are better for one than others. So for the new investors list, listening, what is that difference between cash on cash return and cash flow? Because I think some people think those might be the same thing. Yeah. So uh, I, the the example I love to throw out there is, look, I can go to Walmart and I can go buy a $100 tent and I can throw it up in my backyard and it can make me, you know, $2,000 a year on Airbnb. Well, guess what? The cash on cash return on that is, you know, 2000% or whatever. Um, however, the cash flow on that is very, very minimal um, because I, you know, it's not that much money. In reality, I got to go change, you know, clean, do all these other things to it. And so there's some expenses with it. But in, in, uh, in all actuality, is it worth my time? I think there's a time value here for short term rentals. And with certain markets, uh, they are higher priced, but the cash flow in the tourism draw, people are willing to pay more money to be in those markets. And so there's a higher cash flow at the end of the day. So that money that's coming into your pocket, that profit is higher than in other markets, even though the cash on cash return might be lower. So for a lot of investors that have multiple properties, we're getting to a point like for myself, I have six right now. I will not purchase a property that has a cash flow less than $50,000 because I'm running it myself, I'm self-managing and it's just not worth my time. That's regardless of the cash on cash return. I haven't, you know, that my cash on cash return standard is like 25%, but the cash flow, it has to make at least $50,000 at the end of the day for it to be worth my time or I won't even consider it. So that to me, that's the biggest difference. That's a really, really good tip. So guys, that was super valuable. Hopefully, just if you don't remember anything else from this, actually, there's several things I want you to remember, but that was one of the most important ones. So if you're somebody who's like just starting out and you're scraping the pennies out of the bottom of your purse, like I was when I started out, I was really, really looking hard at that cash on cash return. But if you're somebody, I, I call that like if you're in growth mode, if you're in what I call cruise mode, where maybe you've got a bunch of money in the bank stashed away already, you need to deploy it. That makes sense because you got a bunch of money, you can buy, you know, any number of things, but in order for it to be worth your time, you need to be making cash flowing $50,000 a year. I, so you're not going to go buy something that's maybe it does have a 30, 40 cash on cash return, but it's only making 15,000 a year cash flow. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think cash looking at Investing based on cash on cash return versus cash flow is the difference between being in growth mode and cruise mode. And also those two things are inversely related to each other. So if you are the 
The less you put down on a property, the higher your cash on cash return will be, but the lower your cash flow will be because that mortgage payment is going to be higher. So if you put down 10%, you're going to be making less per month because your mortgage is going to be higher. Um, but if you put down 30%, you're going to have a higher cash flow because your mortgage is going to be lower, but that cash on cash return uh, is also going to be lower because you're putting down a higher percentage up front. I hope I explained that without being confusing, um, but it's difficult. You cannot have the best of both worlds at the same time. Uh, anything else on, on cash flow or cash on cash return before we move on to something else? I know I, I agree with all that. I think just like to add on to someone, maybe a new person that's listening to Kenny talk about his you know fifty thousand dollar property. It's like if I'm analyzing that property, that same property that could cash flow him fifty grand, how we're being leveraged or how we're financing the property is going to be huge, like largely dependent on that fifty thousand dollar cash flow. So you know Kenny could buy a house with cash that cash flows fifty grand. We don't even talk about the purchase price. It could be a million bucks. It could be two million bucks. It could be four hundred thousand. Um, but if I have to pay, you know, with money costing what it costs right now, if I have to do ten percent, well, I might not be able. To, I'm not going to cash flow fifty grand on the house that he's ca paying cash with because you know that's going to be your biggest expense. And so, how it's finance is going to be your biggest. I know we kind of touched on that, but um, is it going to be your biggest when you're looking at two people analyzing the same property? Their numbers are going to be different just because of their financing situation. And one more thing I want to add before we move on to the next thing is that cost seg and um, the the benefits of doing a cost segregation. I also, I look at that the same way, even though it's technically depreciation, I look at that the same way that I look at appreciation is I don't include that in my cash on cash return. That cost seg benefit is extra. Uh, I just look at how the property, what the cash on cash return is from based on the income that the property is bringing in. So cost seg benefits are extra. Also, I want to point out if there's any high net worth people who are new to investing, who are looking for some, a reason, they're looking for a property so they can cost seg and offset their W-2 uh, income. Don't buy something only for the cost seg benefits. So don't let the tax tail wag the cash flow or cash on cash return dog. You need it to be a good investment outside of just, um, now Kenny's laughing and distracting me outside because Kenny thinks he made that, that up and he did not. I did. Uh, so no, that, that was Ryan. <laughs> that was Ryan. <laughs> you guys were saying. Oh, it was Ryan. It was Ryan. You're right. You're right. There's two tails and two dogs because he yeah. was saying the thing about taxes. And you yeah, were saying, different so. different dogs. Anyway, uh, don't don't invest only because so you can cost seg something because you can only cost seg it once and then you're left with a property that may not be performing. So you want it to perform first, cost seg secondary. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I'll say this too: you a, a big mistake people don't realize is you have to hold it for a minimum of five years for the cost seg to be worth it. So are you planning to actually hold that property for five years or more? Like what's your long-term vision? If you're going to do a cost segregation, in my opinion, you should really be like planning to hold it for at least 10 years to really maximize that benefit, you know, and the, yeah, even, even people who are like, Oh, I'm trying to do this for appreciation. Like you're going to need to hold the property for a long time. And like Avery said, you can't just bank on that as your saving grace. Um, you know, it really needs to cash flow. It needs to, you know, at the very minimum, pay the bills, but you need to be looking at it for a long-term perspective as well, um, if that's your plan. So, yeah. And this is all just solid 
fundamentals of real estate. I mean, you're buying for cash flow, like you're making sure that you've got great investments. And then all of this is just icing on top of it. And so fantastic stuff. Yes, lots and lots of great information here. So the next key term that I want to move on to that we've already discussed a little bit is cap rate. So cap rate is typically used in commercial real estate and it is more actually who wants to give the definition of cap rate because I'm going to go into something else. So anybody want to give the definition of cap rate? Yeah, uh, I know I know I kind of touched on it in that initial thing and got into it. It's essentially uh your per- the percentage of profit based on the NOI, so all your expenses and all your costs, you know, over the entire essentially cash on cash return if you pay it on cash, I think is an easy way to look at it from a you know, from somebody on the sidelines. So what's your cash on cash return? Assuming I paid all cash, I'm not leveraged. leveraged. Uh, once we talk about levered and unlevered IRR, it's different, but yeah, ca- cash on cash return, assuming you pay all cash. Anybody else want to jump in? No, that that's that makes a lot of sense. So it, yeah, hopefully people listening can put two and two together, but I really like that. The cash on cash return, if you paid all cash. So nice one, Garrett. <laughs> I have never heard it described like that, but it actually, it does make sense. So a couple notes on cap rate. So cap rates typically used in commercial real estate. Uh, And I mean, it is used in single family rental real estate as well, but there's some things about it that make it not work as well. Maybe not make it be the best. My grammar is terrible today. That. It, it may not be the best way to look at a short-term rental. Be, and here's why. So a commercial property, say an apartment building, the cap rate determines the value of the property. So the higher the cap rate, the more the property is worth. So if you buy, for example, a an apartment building that needs a bunch of work and the rents are super low because the units are shitty and you move all those people out and you update all those units and make it really nice, get a bunch of new people in, raise the rent $200 a month in each unit. Well, now the income is higher, the cap rate's gonna be higher and the property is now worth more because you've made the income higher. When it comes to short-term rentals, when a bank is looking at the appraisal, uh, most of them, are. there are gonna be some exceptions to this, so don't email me and blast me. Everybody, there's gonna be an exception somewhere, but most single family properties are valued. The appraisal, the bank appraisal is based on sold residential comps. So if we have two houses next door to each other, one of them's a short-term rental making a hundred thousand a year. The other one is not a rental at all. In the eyes of the bank, those two houses are worth the same. So you can use cap rate a little bit when you're looking at short-term rentals, but you can't fully because the income of a short-term rental doesn't determine the value the sold residential comps do. So that's why I think cash on cash return is a little bit better of a a metric when it comes to analyzing a short-term rental, because it doesn't matter what a property makes. The bank is going to look at it the same, whether it's a rental or not. Now it can indirectly make the property worth more by being more desirable to investors who are then willing to pay more to acquire the property. But in terms of a bank appraisal, um, it doesn't work. Have I missed anything? Anybody want to jump in on that? I have an interesting kind of take. I don't I don't necessarily disagree there, but I think that... 
You're allowed to disagree with me. Yeah, I semi disagree because I mean, I think we're valuing these properties basically as businesses. We advertise them as, hey, you're running a business. So we're advertising them as, for all intents and purposes, as commercial properties. The only big variable is how we host it and how we do, you know, that's a variable that is not in this asset class of real estate. Um, that being said, and that's another way to boost the cap rate. So I think that it can be a resource. If I can underwrite a house versus based on the cap rate from the income, I have to assume that somebody out there is able to pay cash for the property where they don't care about the appraisal. Now, if I can match that up then with a neighboring property, okay, hey, this is I'm 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 valuing this two hundred thousand dollars too high. Okay, that's where we need to take that cap rate and be like, hey, this isn't going to appraise, so we can kind of use that as full disclosure. But if we're in these areas that are have more and more short term rentals coming, the short term rental income can actually so one person pays an appraisal gap. Well, now that's the comp for the next house next door. And so over time, and I think that we've maybe seen that in the Smokies, I could be talking out of my butt here, but which is why the prices are so much higher in the Smokies is because short-term rental income has increased the value of them because they're able to prove proof. And so the actual, now the residential appraisals are now leveling out based on the comps that are also short-term rental. So um, I think that for a new investor, someone that's not going to pay cash or doesn't, you know, like absolutely. Yes. Hey, this is the cap rate, but if you, you know, I have a client from Charlotte that has more money than I ever thought someone has in a, in a checking account. And, you know, they can buy a house with cash or look, they're looking at cap rates because they're looking at moving money around or they're buying stuff with cash. And so, yes, if you're looking, I think long, long story short, if you're don't think someone can pay cash for your property or you're not using all cash and you are looking at leverage, then cap rates can be a little bit. And even in commercial, cap rates don't, don't tell the full story when you're getting leveraged at all. People are looking at you know levered IRR and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think that that definitely happened and mattered a couple of years ago when there were multiple offers on every single property. But when things slow down and you're trying to value it based on a cap rate, when maybe the actual market value is less, it might not ever sell. Uh, because in a, in a market where there's not multiple offers and things are sitting on the market for a long time, then people can just go buy the cheaper property and get a discount. And so that's a really, really good point that no one has, has brought up on any of these. So I'm glad you did. Um, but it's definitely, you know, it's something to keep in mind and look at. I just don't personally think it's the best. I like I like cash on cash return, but that's why all investors are different. And that's the cool thing about real estate investing is it doesn't matter uh, what what's important to you might not be what's important to me and we can both still be successful with it. So. I think, I think it's kind of changing. I think, and it'd be interesting to see how it changes the next couple of years, because now that short-term rentals are kind of being viewed as more of an actual asset class in just real estate as a whole. It's not just like, Hey, a mom and pop buying a short-term rental. It's like people do this for a living. And even people, even big, big, you know, it's hedge fund investors and all these big time investors start, you know, allocating their money. You know, that's going to be, a, a, that's going to be interesting when we see, okay, Hey, there's going to, a hedge fund that could be up by 10 short-term rentals at once in a portfolio, you know? And as, so as we get more respect and short-term rentals are viewed as an actual asset class, I think cap rate could potentially have down the road be more important. Well, yeah. So I, I'll take that a step further. And once they are starting to widely be viewed as a commercial asset, and all it will take is one big national lender who starts valuing them as commercial assets. And that will completely change the pricing of the entire short-term rental industry, I think. Uh, because at the end of the day, like a, a hotel is a commercial asset. It's just a multifamily short-term rental. So all it will take is one national lender to start valuing them that way. And it'll be an entirely different ball game for sure. Not to like 
go down too far into the rabbit hole here, go but ahead. you know, I have um, I have spoken with venture capitalists who are buying portfolios of short-term rental properties, and they value so they actually buy them from management companies, and they place a cap rate on the whole entire portfolio. Whereas single investors like you and I, we're not really going to use cap rate to determine whether it's a good investment. However, when the venture capitalists or the funds come in and they purchase portfolios, so you know many short-term rentals together, they are looking at the cap rate of that portfolio in general because it's now considered commercial. Um, and I, I mean, we will start seeing that more and more because they're already doing it. So uh, you know, it's just not widely uh, publicized yet. So I, I just thought that was really interesting. And too, like if you're trying to invest in short-term rentals and make this your your long-term hustle, your long-term job or whatever. Um, you need to start thinking kind of like property management companies do and, um, you know, grouping your properties together in a, in a portfolio that would be attractive for someone to buy out because that's where the real money comes in, in my opinion. But anyway, just throwing that out Very there. <laughs> All right, we're going to climb out of this rabbit hole just a little bit, not all the way, because we're going to talk about NOI next, net operating income, which is part of cap rate. So who who wants to give a definition of net operating income? Garrett wants to argue with me until I say, hey, let's... Oh, yeah, no, sure. I mean, <laughs> net operating income, you're taking basically all your expenses and and uh, or all your income and subtracting it uh, from your expenses. Now, that doesn't tell, always tell the whole story. Some people use the term EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, appreciation, and amortization. Um, and so that's something to consider. But yeah, NOI, just like you look at a business, you're looking at the bottom line number uh, from a simple layman's term of you know, how much does it cost for you to run this property and or how much are you bringing in in revenue? total revenue minus how much it's cost for you to uh to run the property at whatever you know level you're you're running it great definition garrett you're crushing it with the definitions today <laughs> um okay so noi net operating income i think the biggest thing for you guys who are listening as a new or small investor is that the main thing you need to remember about NOI is that it does not include debt service. So I see investors get tripped up often when they're looking at someone analyzing something on YouTube or they're being told by a property manager, okay, after all of all the expenses and all our fees, like you still have 50,000 NOI or 20,000 NOI, which sounds really great until you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's my mortgage on this thing? And then all of a sudden, because people will make it sound like if you're if you haven't been in the industry for a while, you won't understand necessarily that that's before your biggest expense, which is your mortgage. So the reason they don't include the debt service in that is because it's nobody is getting the exact same mortgage or the exact same financing, whether it's commercial, conventional, all that. So they leave that open so that you can figure out what your exact payment will be and what your exact net at the end of the day will be. So anyway, NOI does not include mortgage. So anytime you're working with NOI, keep that in mind, uh, especially newbies, that does not mean net. Um, it's not your true net. So just don't mess up with that. That does include debt service. Um, anybody else have anything on NOI before we move on to some other things? Now that we've got got some definitions out of the way. I would just say as a whole, because uh, you know it's helped me out. And I think as short-term rentals get a little bit more popular with just all types of investors, uh, I think it's beneficial to learn all of these terms, learn what IRR is, learn what unlevered IRR is, learn learn what all those things are so that when you actually see them, you can lay, hey, that doesn't apply to me or it does apply to me, or you can you know 
because they there is a place for every single one of those numbers in a short-term rental. Some might apply more or less than others. You know, we talked about Kenny talked about owning a property for five, 10 years. Okay, well, now we're going to look, be looking at IRR. What's the rate of return over five, 10 years? You know, assuming depreciation, assuming a refinance, assuming we're going to come in and renovate it and raise the rents, you know. Um, and so I think it's just, popular. I think it's, I think it's helpful to learn all those numbers. So even if they don't apply to you on running the numbers on one short-term rental, you can read something on the internet and not, you know, either be know what they're talking about or know what they're talking about to know that it doesn't apply to your situation. Also very valuable advice. It is good to know what all of these terms mean and how to apply them, even if you're not necessarily using one or the other in your own analysis. Yeah. This is like, once again, if you're if your plan is to make this like your thing, your your long term, you know, I'm going to be in short term rentals. This is going to be my main income. You know, let's you know, let's the, you're going to need to know these terms. So you might as well learn them now. So I love what Garrett said. All right. Now, after all of that wealth of information, like great job, guys. I, I picked the right team to have on this on this episode. Uh, now we're going to move on from the definitions into data and analysis. Well, we've already kind of touched on analysis, so we're going to talk about data. So there's a number of places that you can get short-term rental data out there on the internet. Uh, what a lot of people don't understand is how to read it and what it means. So Kenny, do you want to give us just a brief like bird's eye view of when I'm looking at data, what am I looking for? Like what the hell am I looking at? And wh what am I looking for when I'm looking through it? It's a loaded question. Um... Yes. Okay. So I, when you're looking at data, it depends on really what you're trying to do and analyze in a market. So, um, you know, I'm looking at just from a high level bird's eye view, I'm looking at, uh, I'm trying to analyze, um, you know, what's the total revenue of the market? What's the occupancy rates to understand seasonality for the particular market? Um, I'm also looking at different uh, percentiles and the performance of the percentiles, meaning that, you know, are there certain properties that are just performing the best because they're in the, you know, right location and how much money are they making versus every, all the other properties, how much they, is there a, is there a, is there a gap in the uh, amount of revenue between the top performers and like the average performers um, and really just diving into the overall market performance and what makes that market do well. And then also, um, and I don't know if you call this data, but understanding what the traffic drivers are in that market. Um, not a lot of people talk about that, but you know, if you go and invest in a market that's out in the middle of nowhere, um, sure, they might be making, you see rentals are making money, but relative to what are the housing prices, what are the traffic drivers nearby, and how many people are coming the foot traffic to that area. So there's a lot of different metrics and data points and um, characteristics of a market that I like to look at before I you know, start looking for properties in the market. I hope that answered something. Oh, yeah. I don't oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like absolutely. I'm going to dig in a little further with you, though. So let's say I've decided I want to buy a a four bedroom in the high country. I'm just making up a number sure. that's not, I'm not suggesting anything to listeners. So let's just say, I think I want to buy a four bedroom in the high country. And so I start pulling data on four bedrooms and I'm looking at these different percentiles, and these different occupancy rates and different gross annual incomes. So what, what do I need to be zeroing in on? Okay. So if you, if you're, I guess, let me back up. If you're convinced you want to buy in the high country, great markets, 
Um, you need to identify where in the high country you should invest. So the number one thing that you need to do is you need to call, I think Garrett's in the high country. You need to call Garrett and you need to ask him, Garrett, from your experience, where are the top performing properties? What neighborhoods, what locations, what are the characteristics? Are they near Banner Elk? Are they near Sugar Mountain or Boone or, you know, wherever? Are they near the ski resorts? Do they have views? And you need to look at the data of those properties and identify the sweet spots or the micro markets within those particular in the high country. So what makes the top properties the top properties? Write down those characteristics, write down those amenities, look through all those listings of those top properties and identify what makes those properties stand out. That's the number one thing you need to do when you study. It doesn't matter the bed count yet. We'll get into that in a second. But identifying what makes those properties stand out and where they stand out because you can never discount location. The high country is a great market to invest in, but not everywhere in the high country is a great location to invest in. So you got to be careful and you got to be smart. Um, and I think you that's by looking at the data and then also calling someone like Garrett, who's an expert in that area to put the color or the explanation behind why the numbers or why those particular data points or those amenities or whatever is is the way it is. So anyway, well, first part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, you also gave a great segue into the enemy method. <laughs> so yeah. um, you can, so guys, there's data is great. You always want to start with the data. The data is always the first step because it's going to give you the range of what you think, for example, a four bedroom in a market might be able to do. But then you'll use the enemy method, which is basically like kind of running comps on the different uh, properties in the area. You say you've got a place picked out on Zillow or realtor.com. Like you haven't engaged an agent yet. And you're like, okay, this looks pretty cool. Let me figure out what this should make. So you look at the data and then you get on Airbnb or Verbo or any of the other OTAs and zoom in on the little neighborhood that you plan to buy and check out your enemies, say 10, 15 of them. And those are technically your neighbors, but enemy method is more fun to say than the neighbor method. So uh, what you're looking for is, so you know it could do between X and Y, and you're looking at your neighbors to figure out how you can be better or maybe you can't be, how you can outperform or how you cannot outperform your different neighbors. So maybe if you've got a four bedroom next door to you that looks like absolute garbage, the listing has tons of misspellings, blurry pictures, like there's somebody's fingers in the picture, you know, any number of things that the data can't tell you, well, they have crappy pictures, so that's why they're not booking well. Or, you know, maybe you've got a neighbor that has like brand new construction, most beautiful thing you've ever seen, but same number of bedrooms, we're probably not going to be able to perform as well as them. So you're kind of trying to zero in within the range that you've found of the data and figure out, well, what can you add? What, what do the top properties have that you can add to yours? Maybe it's a certain, you know, accent wall or something like that. So data plus enemy method. And you definitely do need, you know, your local agent to kind of give you that local color. Like, hey, you don't want to buy something right here because when the wind blows the wrong way, you could smell the dump or something like that, that you could you could not possibly know unless you'd been in that area uh, a number of times. So let's talk about occupancy rate versus income. Which one is most important? I'll, I'll chime in here. I think income, income obviously is the most important, um, you know, over an annual standpoint, you know, I, I'm interested to hear, you know, and I have a couple of questions for Kenny as well. Well, like, Hey, occupancy could be a hundred percent. If I put my thing on Airbnb for a dollar a night, someone could probably stay there every single night of the year. So there's obviously a sweet spot of, you know, but if I do that, I'm only making 365 bucks a year, 
you know? So, um, there's a sweet spot between, okay, how much can I charge per night on this phone? The flip side, if I try to charge a thousand bucks a night and I only get 20% occupancy, there's some sort of sweet spot to, you know, the right occupancy with the right volume. I know people talk about long-term, Hey, 90% vacancy is, or 10% vacancy is great, which means if, if not, I'm charging, I'm not charging enough. Obviously 90% is different in short-term rentals, but the same term method applies. Hey, if I got hundred percent occupancy, I'm probably not charging enough. Um, and so, as far as this market goes, I'm interested to hear, you know, Kenny's kind of, okay, average versus certain property types. But um, I think that's something to consider with occupancies. I think across the board, anywhere from 60 to 80%, and depending if it's a smaller unit is is typical up here. But again, Kenny could be like, you're lying. Uh, the best properties are 95%. So I, I'm not, I'm not sure there. Yeah. So I think it just goes back to, you know, doing the enemy method and looking and running the comps and the occupancy. So if you're looking at, if you're building that, what I call a buy box. So understanding what works in that particular market. So if we're, we're trying to identify four bedrooms, so we understand that four bedrooms, they need to be near uh, beach mountain ski resort, not near sugar mountain, beach mountain performs better than sugar mountain. And they need to have views and they need to have, you know, these certain amenities. These are all things that go in your buy box. Now what you do is you're finding, you found that through looking at those properties, you can see those properties, total revenue, their occupancy, and then average daily rates. So we're just talking about occupancy and, um, you know, total income or total revenue. So that's where you can say, okay, you know, here's the occupancy. Let's average the, out of the properties I've identified in my buy box that work for the buy box. What's the average occupancy rate for those properties? And that's kind of what you'll be shooting for. If you find a property that matches what, you know, what you just identified. Right. So that's, that's my method of doing it. Uh, every market is unique. I think it's really important. So a market I'm invested in, Watkins Glen, New York, my occupancy rate for the year is like 45%. You know, you're looking at, at that and you're like, holy crap, that's nothing. Why would you invest in that market? Well, my cash on cash return was 75%. So, you know, like there's a big difference there in terms of, you know, so like in, in the occupancy rates uh, for, you know, other markets in my market, but I've, looked into that i've identified that and i understand that market and so every market is going to be different and don't necessarily like run away run to the hills because of an occupancy rate it's like super low it's the total income and the occupancy rate that paints the total picture so anyway right. that's it for me gross annual income across yeah. the board how much can i generate yeah. I mean, Joe's in a market, obviously that he's a lot more seasonal than my area where, Hey, the bulk of his revenue is going to come, you know, beach market between Labor Day and Memorial Day, you know, or vice versa. And, uh, yeah. That's a good point too, real quick. I'll just throw this in there. Seasonality. So, um, you know, for new investors they're in terms of like how they plan and how they budget, they're impacted more by seasonality. So being on the beach versus off the beach, if you miss the beach season when you launch a property, you're probably going to be holding that or carrying that mortgage or paying for that mortgage essentially out of pocket until that peak season comes again where you get all that income. Whereas, you know, in the high country, there's, you know, a, the peak season, in my opinion, is a little bit longer. Also, you have, you know, in the shoulder season, you can extend that out a little longer as well. Um, and so, you know, that might be more attractive for the newer investor because there's less, you know, quote unquote, seasonality. However, most investors are looking at year round income. So what's the total income for the year, not income by quarter or income by month. But keep in mind, there is seasonality in every market. There's no 
no perfect four season market. I think that's really important to know is that n- there's no market out there that you can have a hundred percent occupancy across the board, whether your prices are at, you know, peak or, or not. Yeah. Kenny, I got, I got a question for you. Do what, like if I'm, I'm just, I'm actually curious just to know your opinion about it. What, what do you think is our high season? And do you think that changes versus uh, where you are up here versus beach mountain versus Boone? Or do you think there are different seasons? Um, well, the high, I mean, the, are you, like the whole, that whole market is talking about the whole, out of the, the whole Boone, Blowing Rock, Beach Mountain, Sugar Mountain. Do you think out of any of those areas, some are more or less seasonal than others? Yeah. So I've actually seen it by prop, like by property location. So obviously like if you're in a, near a ski area, your season is like the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not, believe it or not, it's like the summertime for yep. those areas. And in, even in the winter time, they're less occupied. If you're not near the ski resort or on the ski resort in, in the high country, they're less occupied in the winter and the summer and into the fall is kind of a higher, uh, the higher season. So I thought that was really interesting where if you're on the resort or near the resort, the winter time is your peak season. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's what I tell people. And I'm glad that the numbers can support that. You know, Beach Mountain, I think is the most seasonal area up here in the wintertime. It's packed the summertime. It is a ghost town. Um, there's less people that care about going up to Beach Mountain in the summertime because they can go to all these other places and they could be closer to Boone and Blowing Rock um, versus, you know, and so I don't necessarily think the revenue is higher or lower. Uh, it's just going to be season, more seasonal um, spread out throughout the whole year. But I'm glad to hear that. What do you what is your opinion on? Uh, sorry, I'm stealing the show, Avery, but I want to do uh, get some. No, ask all the questions. questions. Yeah. On bedrooms, do you think they matter? Bedroom count? Do they matter up here? If someone was asking, yeah. like, "Hey, what's the sweet spot? Like, what works up there? Is it two? Be- is it like a honeymoon suite, or is it a giant house? Or wh- what are your thoughts there?" Um, it's been a second since I've looked at the bedroom counts, but yeah, there are what I call holes in the market or the sweet spots, like you're saying. Um, recently, I mean, it was like five and six bedrooms. It's kind of the bigger the better, and uh, you know, near Beach Mountain, Sugar Mountain area. Uh, I haven't checked. I mean, ones and twos always kind of overall ROI perform better generally across the board. But once again, the cash flow is pretty low, uh, especially for like condos and stuff. But uh, in Beach Mountain, a few months ago when I looked, it was like five bedrooms was kind of the obvious one that stood out in terms of how Mm -hmm. much revenue it made and how much it cost to purchase a property in that market or for a five. Yeah. And a big reason for that from like a local standpoint is, you know, a lot of the really high end homes in the high country as a, in general are in these really high end private gated communities that yeah. don't allow short term rentals. So if you do Beach Mountain is one area that doesn't have any of those restrictions in the, just the town. So if you find a place that has that actually has a big, nice house, the supply is super low. So that that checks out there. Um the, the only reason I asked there is because some people can look at, you know, a data platform that says two bedrooms, you know, and they might be comparing a two bedroom condo or a two bedroom house in the woods to a two bedroom A-frame on top of a ridge that costs 700,000 bucks and is going to book out for 400 bucks a night. So I think up here, you know, bedroom count can only tell, you know, like most markets, it can only tell part of the story because, you know, one thing that we we can look at all these numbers from revenue standpoint and what are the top performing properties, but the prices up in this area you know, there are such things as a half a million dollar review as prices since to try to weigh that back of like, okay, well, yes, this is going to be the top performing, but I'm going to pay an extra half million bucks for this property. So is it going to make the most sense? Um, and I didn't know if there was, if you had figured out a way or have found a way to kind of quantify a view as far as revenue wise, because that's something that could be, can be tricky to do up here. Yeah, it, that's extremely tricky to do. So um, not, not, uh, I, I have a way, but it's very manual in terms of like, cause you have to rank and grade each view in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. like on a, on a 
and give it a numeric value. Right. And then you can run some sort of calculation behind that. But there's no, I guess, um, automated or AI way to do that right now. So unfortunately. All very good questions. And I just want to hit on the occupancy rate thing again, because a lot of new investors who I think a lot of our listeners are new get really uh really attached to that occupancy rate number. And rightfully so, because they're like, oh my gosh, what if it doesn't rent? What if it doesn't rent? I need it to be booked all the time. And it just a higher occupancy rate does not necessarily mean more income. Like I've got a beach property that's super seasonal that has a 20% lower occupancy rate than a mountain property that I have of the same size, but it it makes about $40,000 more a year. So you have to look at the whole picture and not just get caught up on occupancy. I see people post in Facebook groups all the time saying, where can I find year-round occupancy? Well, probably nowhere, A, but B, the other part of the puzzle is you need to know what that, what the income is, because that's most important. And I, but I I think, yeah, adding on to that, kind of what Kenny touched on, I think the most important thing when you do know that is if you are a newer investor being like, okay, this is going to be the occupancy, this is going to be the annual revenue. But if I'm relying, if I'm trying to live off this income or whatever, then you're, yeah, you're going to be upside down for six months out of the year. So so knowing that up front and knowing, hey, 40% occupancy means that for eight months out of the year, I got to hold this money and not do something stupid with it because I got to pay the mortgage in the eight months or six months or how, whatever months are slow. And so I do think that the, that's where the occupancy can, can be important, especially for new people where you know cash is, could be a little bit more tight than others. Right. And you kind of have to like, I don't want to say you have to time it to where you're coming, you're buying right before the high season because a deal can pop up at any time. You can actually sometimes get better deals at the end of the high season because a lot of investors don't want to have to hold the property until the next high season. But if you're short on cash, like I was when I started, you kind of do have to time it to buy where you're closing, coming right into the high season so that you're not having to uh, to hold it during the low season. So really good point. All right, back to data. So Kenny, if I'm going to look at data from any of the data sources, what does that include, such as cleaning fees, taxes, things like that? So what what does that gross number typically include? It would include cleaning fees and uh, like whatever the guests paid per night. So no taxes, no fees, like additional fees or whatever, no OTA fees, like whatever Airbnb or VRBO charges. Um, or direct booking or anything like that. No security deposits, none of that. So just cleaning fees and whatever the the host is charging the guest. Okay, so your state and local taxes, bed taxes, hotel fees, things like that are not included in that data. Okay. That's correct, yep. Okay, because I think that's a big question that a lot of people have is what all does this, what what do I have to subtract out of this? What's included? So I think that's a really good point to make. And it might change by state. I know in North Carolina, Joe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, all the data platforms, Airbnb, Verbo, they take out your occupancy tax and pay it for you. So for instance, if you know Kenny comes and stays in my place, if X amount of night, well, that occupancy tax is already getting taken out. So what my payout, I theoretically am paying that taxes already. So you don't have to worry about the taxes even being an expense because- it's being taken out before you even get it in revenue. You're not paying it later. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I do. I do think though that I mean, a lot of times what I do is you know obviously that's a line item in a pro forma because it's taking out of your revenue, your gross revenue, and then boom, like you know taxes, state, county, whatever city, there's city taxes, um, you know, and that that goes out in the actual pro forma. So okay, so another question that I see a lot of people ask that I just want to kind of have Kenny clear up is, or 
a question that people ask and an assumption that people make is that if they're using like a tool that is available online where you just type in a uh, an address and it spits out what the property should be able to make, or when people are just looking at the aggregate data on a lot of these sites, uh, this is not people opening, like every short-term rental owner in the country opening their books to these data companies. So they say things like, well, I want to see the real numbers. And unless you're looking at a specific property and asking that owner for quote, their real numbers, this is just a range, right? So can you kind of shed some light on like how not quote accurate, but that's the word I'm going to use, like how accurate when you're looking at these data sources are they? So definitely like it gets, it can get iffy property to property, um, especially if you're going to put in into like a revenue calculator or something where you type in address and it spits out a random number because they're pulling a, a radius and not doing the enemy method. Like property A next to property B could be completely different, but have the same bed and bath count. And, you know, like Garrett said, one could be a condo, one could be like a name frame with like, you know, a 10 out of 10 views. And obviously like the income is going to be different. But in these calculator tools, they're not they're not taking any any of that into account. And so it'll just show the lower end of the spectrum. I usually see it like really under project or sometimes overly project what a particular property can do based on the comps that are or aren't available. And so you really have to be careful. Um, and that's why I think with any data tool, one, you're looking at multiple sources. So not just STR insights, not just, you know, the, the other guys, but multiple sources. And then two, you're really doing the enemy method. I mean, that's the number one thing uh, is looking at individual properties that match the the same, the, they're comparables to the property that you're, you're looking at in question. And you want at least three, uh, the more the merrier, in my opinion, but three properties that match their comps and you can get a range, a revenue range. I never tell anyone your property is going to make $50,000 or a hundred thousand. I'll say it'll make between 45 and 55,000 or, you know, 90 to 105,000, something in a range, because I don't know their style of hosting. I don't know, like, how are they going to do with design and decor, the furnishings, all these other things that can impact and really change how the, what the data originally said. So that's why I prefer to say when you're looking at revenue and the data, um, don't just rely on a set number, look at a range, create a range. And I call that the good, better, best model or method. Um, so I agree. I mean, I know we talk about all the time, Avery, in all of our, our different podcasts on, you know, the what separates this asset class from any other form of real estate is that there is this giant variable of how it's going to be run and managed. Sure. Other S you can have better property managers in long-term, whatever, but the difference in the Delta of the variance is way is the, is the largest in short-term rentals. And so, um, you know, the designer, um, and how it's managed, you know, study, if you're in this market, learn what that, you know, that is the main, that is going to be your main driver of revenue. So it, when we're talking, when Kenny is talking about ranges, 30 to 60, well, to be in that 60, you better be a professional host. So learn all of that. And that's just as important as being good at running the numbers. Um, because that is, you know, when, when a commercial broker runs a pro forma on an apartment complex, there's actual hard rent and the rents are not going to change too much because this is kind of the market area. Sure, you could do some renovations and force the rent up, but um, the, the hosting aspect, the hospitality aspect is going to be the, uh, the the biggest intangible of, of revenue. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen investors make, and this is interesting, a statistic I found too. So one of the biggest mistakes is a lot of investors are running off this like 50th percentile, 75th percentile, and 90th percentile range where they say, well, look, 
you know, 50th percentile is kind of the underperformers. 90th is like these top guys who are doing the best. And then 75th is, you know, where I'll probably find it's like kind of the true average range. And that, that won't work for every property any longer. We can't do, this is something that was applied, you know, years ago that did actually work, but now it doesn't work. And in fact, the top, I, I was looking at this, I'm running some numbers, 50% of all top properties across the market so 50% of like the top 10% of properties. So I guess you could say the top 5%. Top, well, kind of. So out of the top 10, the top five properties or five of the top 10 um, are run by property management companies. And these property management companies were individual hosts at one point who excelled. And when you start looking into their what they did, they excelled at being individual hosts and they started managing and co-hosting and then became a property management company and have excelled in that in that sphere. And so no longer are there days where we're saying, well, I can perform better than the property management company because there's a lot of property management companies that are doing way better than individual hosts. Um, and so things are changing. So we can't just rely on generic assumptions of, oh, I will fall in this percentile and use that as my like kind of north star in terms of evaluating and projecting revenue is that is that across the board or is that in my market in particular um i so it's just across the board but i mean i can look in your market and tell you so yeah. um but yeah interesting i think that's all of my actual questions that i wanted to cover is there anything else that stands out to you guys that maybe you see as agents that questions that people have on data or kenny that you think we should have hit on that we haven't hit on yeah, I mean, there's always things to go over, but I, so a couple things, we're talking about the high country here. Um, big, big amenities that drive revenue in the high country. So obviously fire pits are gonna be a big one. Um, I, I did a study on Banner Elk area and it was about 10% increase in revenue was uh, impacted by f having a fire pit. Uh, what type of fire pit, you know, solo stove or, or whatever that I, I can't break that down, but on average it was about 10%. Um, also something too that a lot of people talk about and uh, maybe Gary can provide a little color to is being pet friendly. So what I found in, in the high country is that the lower bedroom counts, one through three, it's it's better to be pet friendly, will actually increase revenue. But the higher bedroom counts, it doesn't matter if you're pet friendly. I think that that's really important to know. Um, it doesn't show any impact on revenue. And then finally, um, another amenity that a lot of people should consider adding, uh, especially high country and Smokies, anywhere in the mountains, is uh, EV charger for luxury properties. So just three random tips for me on amenities in case you're, in, you're looking to invest in the high country today. So. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, well, how would you, uh, the only other question I had Kenny is for, uh, as far as amenity, where would you put a value on having a hot tub? Uh, I know it depends on the type of property, but is there a baseline between having one and not having one? Oh yeah, definitely. So I would probably say, um, let me give you a range. I'm not like, Given the exact number again, but um, uh, the ROI on a hot tub was like incredibly high. It's like it was like a, I'd say a five to ten percent increase on average for right. revenue, um, okay. just by having a hot tub. So there's there's good. definitely a benefit. So yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, and, so and in most markets, most mountain markets, there is a positive correlation, or I, I'll even say statistically significant um, correlation to having a hot tub and its impact on revenue. So. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I ask is I know in the Smokies, it's, it's basically a must have and people kind of 
budget that into saying, hey, I won't buy this property in the high country unless it has a hot tub where I can put one in. And I've never necessarily discredited the fact that it gives value, but how much that is can be a little bit harder because depending on where your property is, it might cost you just in a crane, it might cost you you know, over 10,000 bucks to put a hot tub in. Um, and so when yeah. you do that, Hey, it's not always necessarily, Hey, let's, let's budget this down for a year two or year three. But I've always been curious to be like, okay, $500,000 property, you know, three bedroom, two bath, we're making up numbers. It brings in 50 grand a year. doesn't have a hot tub. Okay. I put in a hot tub, all things equal, all hosting is equal. You know how much more that is. I always tell people, Hey, you never really know until you have one without a year and then you have it with a year and you take the, you know, averages of it. But I was just curious as a, sounds like five to 10% could be a rough, Hey, you breaking it? You bring in fifty. You got a hot tub. You might. You're probably going to bring in another five to ten grand a year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean, there there's data behind it um, that I have, and, and maybe we could chat. Uh, I'll throw you my Calendly link or something, and we could chat another time and actually no go through all the numbers because um, no there's some really interesting stuff. For I've I've looked uh, in depth for folks uh, uh, into the uh, high country, specifically Banner Elk, because they have these questions. So, um, anyway. Uh -huh. I know for my whole life, my, my my parents had a beach house and we just made up numbers of how much we wanted them to have a hot tub so we could enjoy it. But um, now the, the rubber beats the road and we're like, okay, how much, yeah. you know, it'll pay for itself in a year was what we always told our parents back in the day. But it sounds like that's actually true, you know, even now. Yes, yes, 100% for mountain markets. Yeah, it does pay for itself and then some in the first year. So that's why I love uh, the the hot tubs. So in the, in the mountain markets. So. All right. Anything else we want to add before we go that we feel like everybody might need to know numbers wise for the high country? Sounds to me like uh enemy method, enemy method, enemy method guys yeah. across the board <laughs> of just making sure, you know, the people around you looking at the different amenities they provide very property specific across the board. Um, I love that little tip about the dogs too, with the smaller units. Most of my units are smaller and they're pet friendly. And um, I can confirm that that is 100% true. Um, we get a lot more occupancy whenever we were able to do that and uh, across the board. Um, great stuff. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. Uh, thank you for your time. And guys, if you want to buy a property in the high country, email us agents at the shop.com. Or if you just have further questions on, I don't know what market to buy in or anything like that. Uh, we have a weekly call every Thursday. You can sign up at strquestions.com. Thanks, y'all.